I'm reading tonight from a CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. I, I really love this translation. I use multiple translations of Scripture. We usually use the ESV here, so it may be a little differently worded. Um, but but let's let's look at verses, Mark chapter one, verses nine through thirteen. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And then in verse 12, immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels were serving him. So we're going to connect these two incredible and significant events because Mark connects them with that word immediately. Initially, I was pretty overwhelmed at the idea of taking the baptism of Jesus and the temptation by Satan of Jesus in the wilderness and doing that in one sermon. But it really does need to go together the more I've studied it and unpacked it. And that word immediately connects the two things. So I want to consider four we're going to look at, at four main observations from the text, and we're going to specifically consider um, the significance of Jesus' baptism to begin with. Now, a little background. We, we saw last week, we, we saw a glimpse into, uh, in the first eight verses, we saw the ministry of John. John was this guy that was baptizing people. The Bible says he was baptizing people um, with a baptism of repentance, and confession. And so what he was doing was he was baptizing people to prepare them for the coming Messiah. Now, if you're new to the Christian faith, or maybe you've been around uh, the block a time or two, and you hear the word Messiah, it's important, I think, to have definition for what, what, the, what we mean when we're talking about the Messiah. The Messiah was the promised, anointed Savior that, that God had promised literally from the beginning of time, but throughout the Old Testament and Jewish history, he had always promised his people that he was going to send a Savior into the world and that that Savior would be anointed for the salvation of people. That would be the Messiah. And so um, John's ministry was to preach a baptism of repentance to prepare people for the coming of the Messiah. So people were going, they are being baptized by John, and they were being baptized in repentance. Now, I want to I talk for just a minute about, uh, give you a couple thoughts on baptism. I think, there's, I think there's two things that John does, John addresses, um, that, uh, that we can learn from when, in terms of how we view baptism. The first one is this. If you go back to Matthew chapter 3, Matthew elaborates on the baptism of Jesus a lot more than Mark does. And in Matthew chapter 3 verse 7, uh, John is talking to the religious leaders who come out and he says, you cannot be baptized because you don't have hearts of repentance. You are just religious. Now, this would be something Jesus would address later, too. He said, y'all are like whitewashed tombs. You're dead on the inside, but you look nice on the outside. So John says, I'm not going to baptize somebody just as an outward exercise. Baptism has to be connected to a heart of repentance and a voice of confession. And so initially, John is baptized. To this point, baptism would have been very peculiar because there hadn't been, this type of baptism hadn't really existed. The closest thing would have been, there are accounts of 
Gentiles being baptized into the Jewish faith, but that was still different than what's going on here. So to some degree, John's baptism was a peculiar thing because it wasn't like when we see someone baptized, we know what's happening. We have a context for that. So John would say, I'm baptizing people with the baptism of repentance to prepare them to receive the Messiah. And so these religious leaders come out and he says, I will not baptize you because you do not have a heart of repentance. I remember years ago, uh, we were here running. It, there was a youth camp going on. We were, it was the middle of our summer camp, I think. And some local kids had come through the ministry out here um, when they were in high school. And now they were like in their early 20s. And they had gotten really into like the drug scene. And they were, they were like pretty deep down this dark um, path of like drug addiction and abuse. They had gotten into some bad stuff as far as like drug dealers that weren't from the area. That they, It was just a crazy situation. And they showed up here one night and they were tweaking. Now y'all know what tweaking is? They were tweaking. I mean, they were, they were gone. I mean, they were like, like you could see it. And if you've ever been in that situation, it's literally demonic is, is, is what it feels like. I think, I think that it could be similar to what the, the apostles would encounter when someone would be demon-possessed. I mean, there's the, you see it in someone's eyes when they're under the control of, like, like hard drugs and, and drug usage. And they came out, and they wanted me to baptize them. They said, demons are trying to get us. We can see them. And the more we talked to, to them, they were saying that there were some uh, drug dealers that were also trying to get them. And it was like really confusing because they're talking about sort of things in the spiritual realm. I didn't know if they were hallucinating or tripping or if it was really spiritual. But then they were also scared that these drug dealers from Atlanta or somewhere, you know, in the city were going to come get them. So they wanted to be baptized. If they could get baptized, it would all go away. And they wanted me to baptize them. And I wrestled with that and talked with some of the guys here, and I, and I, and I wouldn't baptize them. Because the more I talked with them, they, they weren't confessing the lordship of Christ, and they weren't turning to him in faith and repentance. Baptism is not just a, it's not just a religious ceremonial act. It's connected to, for us, it's connected to our confession that Jesus is Lord and our desire and willingness to take part in his death and burial and resurrection. So when these guys come to John, he says, I'm not going to baptize you because you don't have a heart of confession and repentance. And then when Jesus comes to John in the text that we're reading, Matthew then also records John says to Jesus, I, I don't want to baptize you either. He doesn't say either, but he says, I don't want to baptize you, but it's for the opposite reason. He doesn't, he, want, he refuses to baptize these people because for them it's just a religious act. He refuses to baptize Jesus initially because Jesus doesn't need to repent. And so John is affirming for us that Jesus is not being baptized in a baptism of repentance and confession of sin because Jesus has never sinned. And there's this interaction between John and Jesus where it's funny because in Matthew 3, John says, no, 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 no I'm not going to baptize you. And Jesus says, no, I want you to baptize me to fulfill all righteousness. And so our first two observations I want to unpack. The first one is this, Jesus came to be baptized First, in order to identify with sinners. In order to identify with sinners. I'm going to read you something that I wrote 
because I didn't feel like I could tell the story and, um, and do it concisely. When discussing his baptism, it can be hard to understand why Jesus would have needed to be baptized. But the fact is, he didn't need to be baptized. He chose to be baptized. And he did this in order to identify with the sinners he was coming to save. This is actually a wonderful picture of the servanthood and servant heart of Jesus. At one part, Mark will record the words of Jesus. Rob referenced this last week. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give himself and his life as a ransom for many. A couple of Saturday, Saturdays ago, Tucker was playing a football game in Tallahassee against Florida State. In the first quarter of the game, it looked like Florida State was going to absolutely destroy Tucker's team. But then in quarters two and three and four, the tide turned and it became a different game. It was very competitive. In the end, it was more than the good guys could overcome and they lost. I was asking him that evening, what's it like playing in that stadium of 84,000 screaming and hostile fans doing that stupid, idiotic war chant with another two or three million watching on TV? It's a, it's a doctor, lawyer, philosopher school, let's be honest. Anyway, but he said... It was awesome. He loved being in that environment. He loved the intensity of that moment. He loved being the only guy in the stadium with every eye focused on him when he would go on the field to return punts. 80,000 people doing that stupid chant and that stupid tomahawk motion. And as a dad, I wanted to wring their necks. <laughs> and he loved every second of it. I think he's just wired different than me. He said it was awesome, and he enjoyed playing in that atmosphere. It was an incredible experience. But before the game started, Little had asked Kara, Kara Jones. The Joneses went, and, uh, and then we had some cousins and family that were there. Um, and and our, our cousins, our family, they're uh, Georgia Southern and UGA people. Several, a couple of them graduated from UGA, several from Georgia Southern, and they were wearing Tucker's jersey and number. It was awesome it, just to see that um, support. But before the game, Kara... Um, a little asked Kara to send a video when, when they got in their seats and some pictures. And so the Joneses were there at the game. Kara sent a video and a selfie, and something stood out to me immediately. Kara was wearing a Virginia Tech number 11 jersey with the name Holloway on the back of it. She was literally the only person wearing a Virginia Tech shirt. Everybody in the picture was wearing a Florida State shirt. That included everyone sitting with Kara and everyone sitting all around her in the entire section, which included hundreds of people. Here in a sea of Florida State shirts, Kara was literally the only person not only not wearing a Florida State shirt, but identifying with one person in the stadium. She was identifying with a person that was on the field. And I can tell you this, that as a father, it warmed my heart. She was standing with number 11. And it didn't matter to her that 80,000 people were dressed in the other team standing against him, hoping that he would fail, hoping he would drop the ball. She was identifying with him. It was personal to her. And I dare say not one of those other team's fans had a personal relationship with a single person in uniform. And they still did that stupid chant. They're just part of the noise, part of the tribe, screaming and yelling for people that they probably don't even know. But it's because they are fans. And to some degree, it can even, in America, sports, can even look like a religion. But for Kara, it was personal. 
There's such a statement of support and loyalty when we identify with someone in their circumstance. I recently saw a video of a young barber who was shaving the head of a woman who was losing her hair due to chemotherapy as part of her breast cancer treatment. I don't know if any of y'all saw this video. After he had buzzed the thin remaining hair she had, he turned the clippers onto himself and buzzed straight down the middle of his head and then began to shave all of his hair. She began to cry, but I thought it was a beautiful picture of identifying with someone in their difficult circumstances and situation. And last thing I thought of is I'll never forget walking into a high school football game after my father had been exposed for sexual sin and adultery in the community where he was a pastor. There was a family there called the Lance family. Sheldon and Peggy Lance asked my mom and the rest of us to please come to the high school football game where my brother, my brother was playing. I had graduated already. The, my brother had a game. They asked us to come to the high school game with them. Sheldon and Peggy were high-reputation people in our community, and everyone had the utmost respect for them on what could have been the most humiliating night and experience of our lives. They walked in with us as if we were part of their family, and they treated us as part of their family. They identified with us in our most difficult of moments. Sheldon went to be with the Lord two or three years ago, and I had the opportunity to see him a couple months before he passed, and I thanked him again for that night over 30 years ago. I'll never forget that act of inclusion and kindness, the act of identifying. One of the great comforts we are afforded as Christ followers is knowing that he identifies with us in our weaknesses. Hebrews 4 says he's able to sympathize with us in our weakness. And that, he, that he, and that is because he identified with us in our humanity. He entered into the human experience and condition so that he might save us from it and free us from it. All of this brings me to this first point that I want to make concerning the baptism of Jesus by John. And it's this, Jesus was baptized in order to identify with people in their sin, in order to identify with people in their brokenness. And the hope for us in that truth is that you are never alone, but Jesus identifies with you. He understands your situation. He understands your brokenness. He understands your circumstance. He understands your conundrum, your quandary, your philosophical struggle with the problem of evil and the brokenness in the world. He understands your addiction. He understands your sexual sin. He understands your past abuse. He understands because he entered into the suffering of humanity. And he was, as Isaiah said, numbered with the transgressors though he himself never sinned. He understands. So the baptism of Jesus is Jesus identifying with people who are sinners and sinful and slaved to sin. He identified with us in our sin. Philip Rockin says this, he was willing to be reckoned as a sinner so that sinners could be saved, and so he was baptized. Jesus was not being baptized because he needed to be, Isaiah 53, 12 says, as one numbered with the transgressors, he was baptized to identify with us. This baptism seems a real clear, clear picture of that. The people sort of line up to come down to John to be baptized. And we know that John was preaching this baptism of repentance. And so when Jesus comes up there, the greatest statement is made as Jesus identifies with sinners in his own baptism. We can identify with Jesus in his relationship 
to the Father. That brings us to the second observation, which is this. Jesus was baptized to fulfill righteous obedience to God. Let me read what Matthew says in Matthew 3. And when he records this, he records that conversation between uh, John and Jesus. So Matthew chapter 3 Verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. But John tried to stop him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And yet you come to me. John was like, no, we need to change, reverse the roles here. You need to baptize me. Jesus answered him, allow it for now. Because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. So what righteousness needed to be fulfilled? Jesus was baptized to fulfill righteousness. Well, it was the righteousness of obedience to the Father. The Father commanded it. The Father commanded John to baptize, and it was the will of the Father that Jesus would, would be baptized. I want to I explain something here that I think is important, for, especially for newer Christians to really understand, or if you're not a Christian and you're searching the Bible speaks of what, what happens when a person becomes a, a, a child of God, when a person is saved by grace. So like, let's say, that, let's say that you're not a Christian. And some of you may, I'm sure there are people here that are not Christians. You're not a Christian. In order to become a Christian, you don't do a good enough job of earning and winning God's favor. Like you can't get God to be like, okay, you can be on my team now. You did enough religious stuff. Like, doesn't work like that. It doesn't, doesn't go that way. The, uh, additionally, there's nothing you could have ever done that would disqualify you. Like you're, you can't sin bad enough that your sin is stronger than the grace that Jesus has supplied at the cross. I think people believe two lies. I'm too sinful to ever come to Jesus or I'm righteous enough that I should come to Jesus. Ain't neither one of them works. It's, I'm too sinful to come to Jesus, so I don't have to worry about how to get there. He, through the cross, has come to me, and he gives me his righteousness and then brings me to the Father. It's, it's really wonderful. Uh, it, it's, it's a beautiful thought. And, and uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way. For our sake, God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to become righteousness for us so that in him we would receive salvation God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we could receive the righteousness of God through Christ so so Jesus basically then what happens is when Jesus goes to the cross he fulfills all righteousness in that he dies for our sin and when God looks at Jesus on the cross he sees you and I in our sin there on the cross and when he looks at you, once you've received what Jesus has done by faith, he looks at you and me, and he sees Jesus and his righteousness when he looks at you. So when Jesus says, I gotta, I'm doing this to fulfill all righteousness, if we wanted to break that down a little bit further, I want you to think of Jesus' active righteousness and his passive righteousness. Stay with me. You'll hear Spencer say, I'm going to get nerdy for a minute. Y'all ain't never going to get nerdy because I ain't a nerd. When he says that, I'm like, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. Uh, uh, slow down and try to write, you know. Slow down. Here we go. This ain't nerdy. This is like tailgate theology. Drop the tailgate. Sit down. Let's explain some stuff. Jesus' active righteousness 
was that in all of his willful actions as a human on earth, he was perfectly obedient in his active obedience to the Father. He was perfect in the way he obeyed the will of the Father. It was active righteousness. His passive righteousness was that who he was as the second Adam, born of a virgin, who he was put in her womb by the Holy Spirit. He was not born with a sin nature, so he was righteous in his nature. Y'all with me? He was righteous in his nature. I don't know if active and passive are the right words to use, but for my brain, that works. So Jesus is righteous where we're not. All of us are born sinful. David writes about this in Psalm 51. He says that we're born into sin. We're born into iniquity. In Romans 3, Paul says we are enslaved to sin, and it's like literally, it's like we're living in a grave, decaying in our sin. Jesus is not like that. Jesus is born of a virgin, came into the world, righteous in his nature, truly God and truly human. But then he actively, at every step of the way, obeyed the will of God and then said, I'm going to take all that righteousness and pile that on you so when God looks at you, that's what he sees is my righteousness covers you, covers you. Sitting in the football game yesterday, started raining, it was cold. I was like, little, look at the tuba players. It's halftime. The band's out there, they're doing, they're about 30 tuba players doing the hokey pokey. And there was a, several almost big boys. And I said, little, look at the tuba players. I look over there. She's in the poncho. She said, I can't see nothing. It was raining. It was cold. Poncho covered her completely. You look at her, all you saw was orange poncho. Like that's all you saw. I think there's a human in there. You know what I mean? When God looks at the believer, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. We're clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. So Jesus is fulfilling all righteousness from this point and then at the cross ultimately by dying for our sin. He fulfills all righteousness. Number three, third thing we see is that the Trinity is present and is at work. This is sort of a representation of the coronation of Jesus, the inauguration of his ministry. This is divine confirmation in, in Mark Chapter 1, you've got divine confirmation when the Father speaks. The Father speaks from heaven and confirms that Jesus is the Messiah, the, the chosen and anointed one. Listen to what Isaiah, um, what Isaiah says. I, I, there's a couple of passages that are fascinating to me in terms of prophecy of who Jesus is. So Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 11, Verse 1, then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and strength, a spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge what he sees with his eyes. He will not execute justice by what he hears with his ears, but he will judge righteously. So he says, Isaiah says in Isaiah 11, Verse 2, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. This is a messianic prophecy. So the one who will come to save according to the will of, of God the Father, the spirit of God will rest on him. Okay, now watch this. Mark uses a word in our, in our passage in chapter 1, right there in verse nine. 
10, in verse 10, as soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn apart, being torn apart. That word is used one other time in the whole New Testament. The word is schizo, and it's used one other time, and it's when the veil of the temple is torn apart. Okay, so torn apart, but it is used in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 64. If you read through Isaiah the 40s and the 50s, there's this constant looking forward to the coming Messiah. You get to Isaiah, this by the way was written 700 some years before Jesus. I think that timeline's right. Hundreds of years before Jesus, Isaiah writes this in Isaiah 64.1. If only you would tear the heavens open and come down. And then Mark, several centuries later, Recording the baptism of Jesus says, I saw the heavens torn open. Isaiah said, if only you would tear open the heavens and come down. And Mark says, Jesus, the heavens were torn open and then descending was the Spirit of God. The baptism of Jesus, the Spirit of God descended. It says like a dove. And I think that a lot of people then automatically assume that a dove came down. And I don't think that, and, and as, as I've checked this against every commentary, I don't think there was a dove. It's like a dove, something like a dove. But it was visible and it was evident. And the contrast is, imagine the heavens being ripped open. That's an intense scene. You ever been in a scary thunderstorm? The heavens are shaking. You could feel it in your chest. I don't know what it looked like when the heavens were ripped open, but it's a big movement. It's a big moment that literally the heavens open up as Isaiah had begged for hundreds of years before. Like intensity. And then the most gentle but heavy and evident Spirit of God descended in such a way that John says in John chapter 1, verses 33 and 34, I saw it with my eyes, felt it, it was real. The Spirit descended on him. The coronation of Jesus was complete. This is the Messiah that Isaiah prophesied about. That's what the, the baptism of Jesus is Jesus identifying with sinners, but it's Jesus fulfilling the righteousness and obedience to God. And it is the coronation of the ministry of Jesus declaring him from heaven to be the Messiah. The one that came to save. I love the fact that you see, this is one, uh, by the way, this is one of the moments in scripture where the Trinity is at work. You hear people say, uh, you, people try to describe the Trinity, man, and it's so hard to figure it out, you know. It's so hard to figure it out. The, the way we used to describe the, when we talk about the Trinity, what we're talking about is God exists in, in, in three persons, we would say, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But God is three in one. And it's really hard to explain or describe what that's like. In fact, I think there's an element of mystery that the human mind can't totally fully comprehend. I used to do this with students, to take a quarter and hold it, Remember that game where you take a quarter and, and, uh, and, and outline it with a pencil? You ever do that trick and see if you can roll that down your nose? Anybody try that? You should try that. I'll, I'll see me later. I'll, I'll, see if you're, I'll see if you got the touch. Um, so you hold, the pen, you hold a quarter and you draw a circle around that quarter. Trace it perfectly. How many circles are there? One. Trace it again. How many circles are there? Two. Well, really just one, but it's two and one. 
and then you do it a third time, and you take the quarter up, and you try to explain this to a student. There's three circles, but there's really just one circle. It's three and one. It's the closest I've ever been able to get with tailgate theology <laughs> to try to wrestle out what the Trinity is. But what we've got at the baptism of Jesus is a Trinitarian moment where the Son is praying. The other Gospels record that Jesus is pr literally praying at his baptism. And then the heavens are open and the Father is speaking and the Spirit is descending all in affirmation of the Trinitarian existence of God. And here's what the Father's displaying. I love this. Listen, let me, let me share this thought with you. If you have daddy wounds, you know what I mean when I say daddy wounds? If you, if you came up in a situation where your view of God has always been difficult because you, when we say he's our heavenly father and it's hard to figure that out because I didn't have a good relationship with my earthly father or I was abused or I was abandoned or I never knew my dad or I, like whatever it is. Listen, right here, this is what one pastor calls the quintessential father-son moment in all of history. Because as God speaks, he says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. In that, in that moment, here's what we learn about the relationship of the father to the son. The father was there. He was present. He's a present father the scripture says he's a very present help in time of trouble the father was making his presence known by speaking he articulates he speaks to his people to us he speaks through his word the father was making his presence felt by the holy spirit we receive the felt presence of god by the holy spirit the father identified with the son this is my son identify with him the father expressed his love for the son he's my beloved son this is my son i love him i identify with him i'm pleased the father expressed expressed pleasure in the son i'm pleased with him i'm proud of him i'm thankful to be his father i take pleasure in the son the father was expressing approval of the son and the bible says that in christ we receive that kind of sonship so regardless of what your daddy wound looks like, your heavenly father thinks that about you. He's pleased with you. He takes pleasure in the relationship. He loves you. He's speaking to you. He's with you. He doesn't leave you. It's a beautiful and powerful moment between the father and son that the spirit brings us into. The Holy Spirit is working and that brings us to the fourth and final observation, that in the power of that spirit, Jesus would go to be tempted by the devil. Immediately, the spirit drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. Verse 12, the other gospel writers record more detail on that. William Hendrickson says this of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. By means of his voluntary submission to baptism, Jesus had signified his entire willingness to accomplish the task assigned to him, namely, to suffer and die in his people's stead. It is, therefore, logical that affliction in the form of temptation began at once. Adam, when tempted, failed. So Christ, the last Adam, must now be tempted in order that by his victory over the tempter, he may, for all who believe in him, undo the results of the first Adam's failure. Adam failed when he was tempted in the garden. Jesus will go into the wilderness to succeed 
where Adam failed and to reverse the curse so that he might bring salvation rather than condemnation. It's hard to imagine how Jesus could even be tempted considering the fact that he was truly God in human form, God in the flesh, that he had no sinful nature. For you and me, temptation comes both from the inner voice of the flesh, its desires and lusts, James 1.14, but also from the outer voice of Satan who tempts us with what he knows and entices us to draw us away. But for Jesus, there was no inner sinful lust and desire. He's fully human in the sense that he felt hunger and weakness and that, and that in that destabilized condition, Satan tempted him with the enticements that appealed to his natural flesh. Forty days with no food, Jesus was very hungry. So Satan first tempted him with food, but to some degree, this shows how Satan tempts. I'll give you the final sort of concluding thought in the temptation of Christ by Satan. Three thoughts on this temptation and what they mean for us. Number one, Satan, if you go, by the way, I, Mark doesn't record the actual temptation. You can read that in uh, Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel. But what he does is he takes Jesus, there's a point where he takes Jesus and he says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. Let's just, let's just look at it. He takes him up uh, and kind of overlooks the world and says, I'll give you all. He, the devil took him um, to the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down for it's written. He will give his angels orders concerning you. He, they will support you with their hands so that, they, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. If you're the son of God, the tempter said, turn these stones into bread. He's tempting Jesus in a very specific way, and there's three thoughts on those temptations. The first one is this. Satan always tempts by promising what he cannot give. He will make promises to you that he cannot deliver on. This will make you happy. This other relationship will bring you joy. This pursuit will fill you up. This thing will satisfy you. Those are the lies that Satan tells. He just lies. He makes promises that he can't keep. Jesus already had the authority that Satan was promising. When Satan's like, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. Zach showed us two weeks ago how in Mark chapter 7, Daniel said, I saw this vision where the Son of Man was given authority over all the kingdoms of the earth. Who's the Son of Man? Jesus. Jesus already has this authority. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says Jesus sustains everything in the universe by the word of his power. In Colossians 1, Christ is supreme over all things. Jesus already had that authority. Satan promises what he can't give. He lies. Y'all listen, Satan will lie to you. You've got to run it by the truth of the Word of God. You've got to run it by the truth of the Holy Spirit when you're wrestling with, is this the right thing? Should I do this? Should I not do this? Number two, Satan most often attacks us in our weakest moment or immediately following victory. This is an important warning, and I've already now, I've got one minute, and I'm supposed to be done with this sermon, but it's going to take me six more minutes, so stay with me, all right? Two things that I think Satan's going to do when it comes to his strategic attack. He's going to attack you at your weakest moment or he's going to attack you on the heels of victory. Jesus comes out of that baptismal moment and Satan attacks. I think, I think so oftentimes in my personal life when I've struggled and fallen for Satan's lies is right after God's done a mighty work in my life. Right after I've come through a season of watching God move. But then also he loves to attack people when they're down and out, man. 
When you're in one of those seasons of life where it just keeps stacking up, and you're like, I can't take no more. He's going to come at you, and he's going to whisper, and he's going to lie to you. And that brings us to the third thing, what he's going to do. He's going to twist God's word to confuse, disorient, and deceive. He's going to say God is not enough. God is not good. God doesn't keep his promises. But see, Jesus is sustained in those temptations, and you and I can be sustained in our temptation. The Spirit is resting on Jesus. The Spirit is empowering Jesus. The Spirit for us will give us strength. He'll strengthen our faith, and he'll give us insight into the Word of God. Jesus turns that around, and he attacks Satan with biblical truth. He attacks the enemy. He goes on the, not the defense, but the offense, and he attacks and I love it because it says angels came and ministered to him. If we will fight the good fight against the enemy and his lies, God will strengthen us, encourage us, and bring us what we need in our time of need. But you've got to fight. Satan will rob you of your faith. The Spirit will fill you with faith. When by faith you trust in the Lord. Jesus doesn't set an example for us here solely so that, we might, so that he might say to us, come on, try a little harder and do what I do. While we live our lives emulating and modeling after the example that Jesus set, the greater hope that we can draw from Jesus, his temptation in the wilderness is that he has power and authority over Satan. What Jesus displays in the garden is that he has authority over Satan. He has a righteousness to judge Satan and to put him in his place. And we surrender to Christ who has identified with us in his earthly ministry and his baptism and becoming one of us and entering into hum humanity and Hebrews 4 says he is able to help us in our time of need because he's been tempted as we are but he never sinned he never yielded he never gave in he never buckled Spencer gave such a good illustration of what it looked like that Jesus held up under the weight of temptation where we have failed and he'll help us and he'll bring us into that victory by his spirit it's the spirit that led Jesus into the place of wilderness and tempting. That same exact spirit Jesus promised to give us, to empower us with, to indwell us with, to, to put in our lives. So the greater hope is that we will walk through this wilderness. The spirit leads us in this wilderness. The spirit empowers us in this wilderness to be united with Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection and to defeat whom Christ has already defeated by his authority, not by ours. And to know that when God looks on us, those of us who are in Christ, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. He don't see your sin. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. This is the beauty of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, um, thank you for the power of your word, the authority of your word, the truth of your word. Um, so much wonderful truth and grand reality so much majesty and authority that you control and possess. The scripture says in Philippians 2 that, that now you have been highly exalted, that you humbled yourself and became obedient even to death on a cross, but now you've been highly exalted. And I pray that through your baptism and through your example of the power of the word of God, to defeat temptation and sin and the deception of the devil through your example of obedience to the father and through your your love and mercy to identify with us in our sin 
I pray that our lives would be changed by that. I pray if there's someone here tonight that doesn't know you personally, that you'd shape and change their lives by the power of the reality of Mark chapter 1. In Jesus' name, amen.